Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. This is Sean Yurick of Ogletree Deacons. I'm a shareholder in the Dallas office and have been practicing labor and employment law for over 20 years. And I'm excited to be here with a couple of my colleagues. Uh, this is Adam Doherty, and I can probably just say ditto to what Sean said. Also a shareholder in the Dallas office, have been practicing for about 22 years as well. Uh, this is Justin Gross. I am actually in the Oklahoma City office of Ogletree Deacons, which has been around for just over five years now. And I've been an associate here for uh, that entire time. And in greater practice, I've been out for almost 10 years now from law school. So it sounds like between us, we have about half a century of experience together. That's right. Amazing. Amazing. Well, we, um, several weeks ago, Sean and I attended an internal Ogletree um, session where you were talking about your recent experience um, prevailing at a trial up there in Oklahoma, and we thought it uh, would make a great topic for one of the firm's podcasts, so here we are today. And what we uh, hope to achieve in this podcast is for Justin to tell us about the case and also to give us and, and our listeners today some of his key takeaways for what led to his victory and essentially just sharing some of his uh, key tips and insights from that experience. Yeah, good thoughts there, Adam. And one thing I would just add is, is the, uh, you know, it was remarkable because uh, Justin and one of our other associates here at the firm both took a very active role in their uh, successful trials. So, you know, at at a lot of firms, I think, uh, you have to be a shareholder uh, and sometimes uh, practice 20 years to, to get the kind of experience that those guys got. And so I was kind of uh, blown away by just not only the, the active role that they took in those trials, but just uh, a lot of the insight and really, uh, you know, uh, advanced uh, trial strategy and, and just the thoughts that they gave us during that uh, internal webinar. It was really impressive to me. Yeah, and I think uh, as our listeners probably know as well, it's it's just very rare for cases to get to a, a final jury verdict these days for a whole number of reasons. Um, so given the uniqueness of, of Justin's experience, um, again, we thought it'd be great for him to share his insights with us. So Justin, why don't we start with you telling us uh, just from a high level uh, what the facts and allegations were in, in the case. Yeah, so this case was filed here in Oklahoma City in the Western District of Oklahoma, which is federal courthouse, and it was filed back in early 2000, uh, or actually early 2020. So right at the beginning or just before COVID kind of hit OKC with the Thunder game that I'm sure everybody remembers. And uh, we jumped right in. From the very beginning, this case had kind of the the full gamut of, of procedural things you might run into throughout a case. Um we, we filed a motion for judgment on the pleadings at the very beginning. And then, you know, two years later down the road, a summary judgment motion and obviously faced some delays throughout uh, because of COVID. But the facts of the case were um, a guy was terminated after uh, 
the HR department did a full uh, thorough investigation into allegations against him that were made by a coworker who claimed that he had sexually harassed her, sexually assaulted her on an elevator um, at almost 2.30 or almost 1.30 in the morning. And they had worked together before, didn't really know each other. And, you know, he tried to claim that it was this mutual flirtation that, um, you know, he basically rebuffed her advances. And then that's why she reported it to HR. She said, you know, he asked me to go help in another part of the building. And, you know, I thought I was trying to be helpful. And then I get on the elevator and he starts, you know, making these comments. And then it actually turned uh, somewhat physical. So she reports it a few days later. And then the HR department gets involved and they did a very thorough investigation. They checked into security footage. They interviewed everybody that worked around these two people that night. Uh, they talked to other coworkers that had seen and witnessed him making similar comments in the past. But, you know, they, they didn't just make a rash decision then. They still investigated it, spent weeks deliberating over what exactly they were going to do. And, you know, part of this took some time because of the shifts people worked and, you know, they wanted to make sure that they were thorough in that investigation. And then uh, to top everything off, after the uh, ultimate plaintiff in this case was told, you can't come back to work, you're suspended uh, pending an investigation. What does he do? He shows back up and starts trying to interview people on his own. So they said, well, you know, that's that could be viewed as interference with the investigation that you're trying to somehow manipulate what people might say. So after about three weeks, they finally decide that, you know, we're going to have to terminate your employment. Uh, they did that. And then, you know, a few months later, he retained an attorney and went through the whole EEOC process. And then that's how we ended up in litigation. And what were the basis for his actual claim? What type of discrimination or retaliation? Yeah. So in this case, he actually brought two types of claims. One was a race discrimination claim under uh, both Title VII and Section 1981. And then he also brought a reverse gender discrimination claim, which is kind of interesting because you don't see those very often. But in the Tenth Circuit where I'm at, you know, there's still an old case from the 1990s that's still good law. And you have to kind of make this heightened showing, so to speak, that this employer is the type of employer that routinely discriminates against males. That's the claim that we were actually able to get kicked on a motion for judgment on the pleadings. And then it kind of came back up about a year later, if anybody had seen the Vostok decision that came out with the U.S. Supreme Court, they tried to argue, the plaintiff's counsel did, tried to argue that somehow Vostok revived that claim. And ultimately, the judge said, you know, I don't think it has any bearing on the claim. I, I'm keeping it uh, I'm keeping it out of the case. So what we ultimately went to trial on was uh, this race discrimination claim under Title VII in 1981, which is interesting because you had that kind of juxtaposed against the uh, sexual harassment complaint made by the employee who initially reported him to HR. And just a couple of uh, points for anybody who, who may be listening who's not an employment attorney who may not know um, what Section 1981 is. Um, that's a federal statute separate from Title VII that doesn't have damage caps and only applies to race-related uh, claims. Uh, a lot of times you'll see a plaintiff lawyer won't even remember to plead Section 
1981 when they're um, you know pursuing a race claim at times. And then also uh, Justin mentioned the Bostock decision, which is the United States Supreme Court opinion in which the court said that gender discrimination includes sexual orientation and other types of discrimination related to gender that are, or, or uh, could be transgender or other types of discrimination. And so I'm kind of curious how the Bostock decision was even used as, as an argument there, Justin. Yeah, so this was something I kind of monitored from day one, you know, because the the causation standard for a 1981 claim, which you mentioned doesn't have damages caps, uh, can be different than Title VII because you have a couple different mechanisms that you can use in Title VII, one of which is the because of standard, but for causation but then there's also the amendment to Title VII that allows someone to prove their case um, by a motivating factor. And what that does is it allows a plaintiff to say, look, one of the many reasons, you know, even if there's some discipline reasons or other uh, legitimate reasons, but if we can show that even one of the reasons that we were terminated or subject to an adverse employment decision is related to our protected category, in this case, race, um, then we still at least win our attorney's fees. It does cut off damages, but they still win their attorney's fees. And in these cases, you know, depending on how contentious the litigation is or how long it takes to get to trial can easily be a, a good chunk of change. And so we, we kind of went back and forth with plaintiff's counsel when we were preparing the final pretrial report and the jury instructions and everything else. And where that Bostock case fit in, was, you know, Justice Gorsuch in that case talked about the the causation standard again um, under Title VII. So we were able to argue and successfully argued that it was the but-for causation should apply. And ultimately, that's what we were able to get in our jury instructions. And, you know, that can help a lot in your closing argument because, you know, if you're arguing a but-for standard versus a motivating factor standard, that allows you to argue uh, more to the jury and that, look, you have to show that this specific protected category, and in my case, race, is is the reason that this person was terminated or subject to adverse employment action. So that was something I closely followed once that case came out um, as we were preparing our jury instructions and getting ready for that jury instruction conference with the judge. All right. Uh, Adam, what was kind of one of the next points that we wanted to talk about? You kind of led us there, Justin. So tell us about some of the pretrial briefing and arguments before the court, motions in limine, um, if there, you have any key takeaways from from that. Yeah, so th- this was kind of interesting, and, and a lot of this is due in part to COVID, I think. But we filed our motion for summary judgment and everything in the fall of 2020. I actually had COVID that week when I was finishing up the motion, so that sticks in my mind vividly. But, you know, we decided to just go ahead and get everything done. Um, That was what the client wanted to do as well. You know, sometimes we'll, as a cost-saving mechanism, maybe push off some of those deadlines if it makes sense to do so. But here, the client wanted to stay aggressive. And so we went ahead and filed everything uh, at the end of 2020. So some of the motion limiting issues we ran into were this particular plaintiff actually had a similar allegation against him that was ultimately uh, did not result in his termination. It was, you know, factually, it was it was less severe than what was alleged here, but they tried to keep that out. Uh, we won that argument because it was clearly something 
that was considered in the totality uh, when they were deciding to terminate him. And then there were a couple other motions in limine that that they filed. The plaintiff in this case had a couple of uh, older criminal convictions. One one was actually from your state, Texas, and then there were a couple out west. And you know the rules are pretty clear on what can or cannot come in. And so uh, we gathered all the necessary documents and evidence to to prove up those if we needed to. And ultimately, we felt good enough about our case that at the uh, final pretrial conference, we just said, "Look, we're gonna we're not gonna bring those up. You know, we don't want to risk any kind of uh, error." on appeal because we feel strongly about our case. So uh, all of that briefing though was done at the end of 2020. We didn't get our uh, order on the summary judgment until the end of March of 2022. So it was about a 16, 17 month ish delay. And so that was interesting for a variety of reasons, which I can talk more about in a minute, but I had kind of pushed the case out of my head. You know, I was working on tons of other things. And then when we get the order, that says, you know, we've got this one claim that we're going to go to trial on. He only gave us about six weeks. And so that led to uh, some issues with people who had retired or had been terminated or, you know, had just changed jobs in that uh, almost year and a half period. Do you know or have any sense of why the judge uh, didn't rule on that motion sooner? Or was it just one of those deals where you just never heard anything? I think the the courthouse here uh, was pretty busy during COVID. You know, it's it's definitely the busiest federal court in our state. And, you know, I don't think that the case was overly complicated. This wasn't, you know, a big class action or anything like that. But I think they just wanted to take their time. There were a lot of facts to weed through. The investigation I mentioned earlier, they talked to, I think, around 10 people. We had over 50 pages of notes from the HR folks, not to mention the policies and procedures that they relied on as well to come to their ultimate uh, conclusion. And so the the plaintiff's counsel really tried to make a fact issue out of some of the statements that were made by some of the witnesses. So I think that probably led to some of the delay and just kind of weeding through, okay, what's, what's a fact question here and what's not a fact question? So just a quick comment for anyone who's not an attorney and who has continued to listen to this podcast and may think to themselves, well, what's a fact issue or, you know, just wondering again what summary judgment is. And maybe they know a little, but not a lot Um, to kind of boil it down. You know, the motion for summary judgment is a way to tell the court that uh, even assuming all of the facts that that the plaintiff has pled uh, and put forth are true, uh, through, you know, deposition testimony or uh, any evidence that may be presented or attached uh, by either side. Um, it's us as defendants saying that the court can look at that and accept all, all of plaintiff's version is true. Uh, and there still is, uh, you know, um, no way that the plaintiff can prevail under the law. And therefore, um, the court says, even if all these facts are true that the plaintiff claims uh, or alleges, um, as the court looks at it and says, it's really not appropriate for a jury because the law would uh, determine the, the defendant to prevail. And so, um, uh, you know, Justin's referring to the fact that all these witnesses uh, are involved. I assume the, the plaintiff probably attached 100 pages to their motion for summary judgment response or something. If not more. Yeah, right. 
Oh yeah, I think it was. I think it was over three hundred pages. Their response, um, and then you know, typically you don't get into uh, uh, the plaintiff getting to file a second response, which we call a sir reply. In this case, they asked for that and were allowed to do so. So that was even more um, that was added to the briefing. I think the briefing was easily over five six hundred pages uh, with all the exhibits. But in this case, it really boiled down to you know this. He claimed that he did not harass her on this elevator, that it was a mutual flirtation. She said that he did. And in that case, the judge, like you said, Sean, they have to take as true what he's saying. So as long as he denies it and there's no video evidence of him of him doing it, then the judge has to take that as true because that is a material fact question in the case. Now, Justin, I have one more question because I'm sure there's some out there who are just wanting a little more of the detail about what was alleged in the elevator. Specifically, was the individual who denied or said it was flirtatious, you know, um, our, our client uh, or witness, did, did he claim uh, that there was physical contact? Kind of give just a little bit of information there because this is one that we don't see these every day. Yeah, and let me add to Justin along those lines. It'd be interesting, I think, for the listeners to know how your client, our client, couched their findings uh, from the investigation. Being that it, it sounds like there were no witnesses, it's it's ultimately he said, she said. Um, I, I think that's something that arises with our clients oftentimes when they're in a situation like that, and they're basically just making a judgment call. Yeah. And and that's exactly what this case was, is it was a judgment call because we did not have a camera that showed what happened on the elevator. But what we did have was a camera that showed the hallway leading to the elevator. And from that, you can, you know, you can map out the time it took to walk from one end of the hallway to the other. You can map the time that they were off camera. Uh, and you can also, because it was a pretty high resolution camera, you can see, uh, both of their, uh, both of the individual's body language, which I think that was uh, big to the jury. And that was something that I was able to ask the plaintiff about during cross-examination. You know, I would point out certain things in his body language or certain things in his story that, that just didn't match the video evidence. And so Sean, to your question about what actually happened on the elevator, she claimed, uh, the complainant claimed that the plaintiff in my case had asked her to come help find a, a patient somewhere else in the building. So they walk down the hallway, they get on the elevator. And if you've ever been in a hospital, it's, it's one of those service type elevators where you have uh, a key that operates it. And so she had never been on this elevator before. So once they get on, he did something to manipulate the controls where it stopped. And so it wasn't going up or down. It just stayed in place. And that's when he starts talking to her about her appearance and, you know, that he's seen her around the building for some time. And then he started to actually touch her and he tried to grab her from the backside. He tried to kiss her. And then she testified that, you know, I'm telling him what is going on? Why are you doing this? Please get away. And he still doesn't stop. Then he, then he talks about, you know, that he's aroused and he can't get off the elevator now. And she says, please let me off the elevator. I don't know how to get off. So then he does something else to the controls. And then she's able to finally get off of the elevator. So again, it, it's a he said, she said situation. But when HR did their investigation, they did talk to other people. 
on the floor and other people had heard him make similar comments to her before. Um, so that was a point against him. But, you know, when they finally got to the termination document, they just summarized, you know, the story he'd given, the story she'd given, as well as the statements from other witnesses. And one thing that really hurt him in this instance was his initial story to HR was, well, I was up on the floor dropping off a patient. And the video I mentioned a minute ago from the hallway, he doesn't have a patient. He doesn't have any equipment with him. So that was definitely something that went against his credibility. And it is a weighing of, of what both sides are saying. But when you add up all of the other things that HR was able to get, you know, I believe the language they used was that it was more likely than not that he did something that violated the sexual harassment policy, which is what led to his termination. In addition to violating that policy I mentioned earlier, which was you're not allowed to come back to work and, you know, while you're, while an investigation is pending. Justin at the trial, how did he explain the uh, information that he gave about the patient and the fact that the camera didn't show him bringing up a patient? Well, his lawyer did a really good job of asking him all of these questions about forgetfulness. And, you know, this was one, one case where, you know, we had this timeline that he gave and we had a timeline that the complaining party had. And then also just the timeline I put together, uh, working with all of the witnesses. And so his lawyer kept asking him these questions about, well, you know, the complaining party took three or four days to make the complaint. And then it was another couple of days until you actually were able to give your story. But what he had done was he had told uh, another coworker, his friend, you know, the quote story of what happened about three hours after this incident. And that guy was able to relay that same story to HR. And so on the back end, HR was saying, wait a minute, we've got the same wrong story from both the plaintiff and his friend. So it was, it was fairly easy for them to discredit that story. And his excuse at trial was just, you know, forgetfulness or a few days had gone by. And then that's where, um, you know, I had a pretty detailed outline of all of the statements he had given during the investigation, as well as the three or four stories he had told me at his deposition. So he kind of made my job easy in being able to impeach him to say, well, that's your first story. And then that's your second story. And, uh, you know, and then that was kind of my highlight during closing argument was that, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but the plaintiff's counsel made the big focus of the trial. If you look at the trial transcript, the word elevators in there probably a thousand times, but they made this big issue of, can you, or can you not physically stop this elevator? And, you know, I think they did that because they knew that the plaintiff's story didn't add up. And so that was kind of my, um, you know, one of my themes in closing was that they're not focusing on the plaintiff's story. They're focusing on this elevator thing. And the way we ultimately defeated that was I was able to track down an elevator mechanic who never worked for our client. So he very credible um, and now actually works for the elevator union here in Oklahoma. And he was able to discuss very concisely and accurately at trial for the jury in about 15 minutes. Here's the controls of the elevator. Here's how they all work. And here's exactly how this could happen. Um, you know, 
to stop the elevator without alarms and things going off. And so I think he was one of our most critical witnesses at trial to explain that. And again, why was that an important point, Justin? Well, because the, the plaintiff's counsel argued in opening statement and throughout the trial that the elevator can't be put on hold, which means the complaining party's story is completely made up. And if her story is completely made up, then you shouldn't believe it and you shouldn't believe anything else HR did. And the whole investigation is biased against this plaintiff. Mm-hmm. So I know Adam has some questions for you about the trial, but one final question we had uh, discussed earlier about the motion for summary judgment. Maybe just summarize real quickly. Uh, what was the judge's essential conclusion and why summary judgment was not granted? So, like I mentioned earlier, it was really just a who said what, right? We have the plaintiff testifying at his deposition that this did not happen. Um, No way, shape, or form did it happen the way as described, and I told HR that throughout. And then we had HR saying, well, we, we took what he said, but we also looked at what the complaining party said. She never changed her story. We had all these other people who provided statements, some of whom corroborated her story that he would often make comments about her physical appearance. And where the judge came down on that was he just he he really second guessed, um, you know, what each person in the investigation said, because, you know, he's kind, he was kind of bound by that denial by the plaintiff of, you know, this is the material fact question of the case. Did it happen or not? And so he concludes, well, he's saying it didn't happen. And the standard on summary judgment says, I, uh, you know, I have to, I have to go with his side. Okay. Well, just to clarify though, as far as the uh, ultimate fact question, wouldn't the ultimate fact question essentially be whether the company considered race or, you know, in the termination decision or uh, actually retaliated versus whether or not the story itself was true. Yeah, so that, that's a good point of clarification. I mean, that is the ultimate issue. The way the plaintiff's counsel argued that particular point was that, you know, there was some kind of pretext, that there was some kind of, you know, implausibility in the story or that the that the client's HR team could have been more thorough in looking into whether or not this elevator functioned as uh, as he said it did and whether or not it could be stopped. So their argument was, well, you just didn't care about a thorough investigation. And so you just kind of ran this thing through, notwithstanding the fact that we had, you know, a three week long investigation and the 50 plus pages of notes I mentioned earlier. And then the other thing that was on summary judgment too, I don't think we've talked about this yet, was the comparator data. Yeah. Tell us about it. So I think this is important for two reasons. One, just just for the HR folks that might be listening to this about how to conduct your investigations um, and in-house legal folks about, you know, if, if you're ever involved in those, how to do how to do those and how to deal with those on the front end. But then also from the litigation standpoint, how to deal with that as well. So we had uh, they had asked in discovery for other instances of you know, racial discrimination complaints. There weren't any, but they asked for other instances where there was some kind of sexual harassment or complaint involving uh, something of a sexual nature and any of those investigations. So 
I knew that would be something that came up in the case because it comes up in every case. So we got ahead of that early on and I was able to isolate a couple different instances that I thought this judge might end up granting a motion to compel on later. So we were able to look at all of those ahead of time and kind of assess the overall case, you know, assuming that those came in through discovery and ultimately maybe came into evidence at trial. And so uh, there were some other instances involving the same HR people and they had disciplined people. And, you know, I hate to say that there's a spectrum here, but there is, I mean, it's one thing to, to touch someone versus, you know, maybe you say you look pretty today in, in a passing comment that makes someone uncomfortable. I mean, you know, all of those things are going to be inappropriate under their policies, but that was how we had to try and distinguish those in discovery and on the motion for summary judgment and ultimately at trial, because that was another thing we filed the motion in limine on. I, I forgot to mention earlier, but the judge ended up allowing some of that evidence to come in. And, so, you know, the key, the key takeaways there are, you know, getting ahead of it early on in the case to kind of assess how you feel uh, the strength of your case is, assuming that stuff comes in. Um, and we did that. But then also from HR, you know, just being able to explain, well, this person has this complaint against them and their protected category is X versus this other person whose protected category is Y. And it, and it looks, you know, it's the same type of violation of policy. And so you want from the HR and legal standpoint, treating those people equally and justify, you know, why you may have terminated someone or put someone on uh, a final written warning, whereas this other person just got a verbal. Okay. And before I turn it over to Adam for a few questions about the trial, just a final comment for anyone listening who may be multitasking. And at some point you're, you're asking yourself, wait, is this a sexual harassment case? Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Justin, but you know, there, there was no sexual harassment claim here because it's the person, the alleged harasser who has filed the lawsuit for relating to their termination of their employment. The, the, the individual, uh, who alleged harassment or made the internal complaint, uh, is not the plaintiff here. That's exactly right. And the plaintiff's counsel though, interestingly throughout trial, and I think this, I, I don't think this served them well, ultimately. But they they kept bringing up the sexual harassment policy and saying, well, you know, why didn't you discipline? Why didn't you discipline her? You know, if if what the plaintiff says happened on the elevator is true, that she flirted with him, that she came on to him, then why does she not get disciplined for that? And so mm -hmm. they made that one of their other themes at trial. So the, the sexual harassment policy, you know, was kind of hand in hand with his racial discrimination complaint. The person who filed the internal complaint, did she make any uh, EEOC claim or file a lawsuit? No, she didn't. Right when it happened, I mean, she followed their policy. Um, she had been trained on it. It was in writing. And so what she did was she went to her leader and then to HR. They offered her uh, EAP, the Employee Assistance Program, if she needed that. And, you know, she was, she was a really strong person. Um, you know, I was very impressed with her throughout the case and, and, and her testimony at trial, being able to come in to a courtroom and tell, you know, 15, 20 people, including all the lawyers, the jury, um, the judge and any spectators in there about what happened to her. And, um, you know, this wasn't a case where she felt like there was something that the, that the client had done wrong that they needed to, you know, that she needed to seek relief on that. 
but she did follow off the policies. They gave her um, assistance as needed. And then, you know, and then they handled the problem, right? Because they followed their policy, investigated it, suspended this guy and ultimately terminated him. Okay. So along those lines, give us a feel for how you prepared your witnesses for trial. That's obviously a very important factor that always goes into having a successful jury verdict like you obtain. Yeah. So obviously with any trial, there's a lot of prep and I think it starts, you know, kind of at the beginning of the case, because way back in 2020, when I got the um, initial investigation file, you know, I was able to see the names of all the people that were in HR and the names of all the witnesses that were interviewed. So I wanted to go ahead and reach out to everybody on the front end just to kind of introduce myself. I mean, you know, sometimes you as lawyers, we call witnesses and they don't want to talk to us because we're lawyers. Right. So I always try to reach out to people myself um, early on. You know, I don't want you know, I've got a paralegal. He's great. But I like to do it personally and reach out to them and say, you know, I'm the person you're going to be working with throughout this case. I'm the person that's going to be asking you these questions if we get to a deposition or trial. So, you know, on the front end, it was just really some fact finding. And then when we got close to trial, uh, most of these people, most of the witnesses weren't deposed, only the HR people were. And there's a whole bunch of prep that goes into the deposition because I like to meet with everybody for, you know, a half day, full day, whatever, whatever makes them feel comfortable, because that's the goal is to, is to make sure the witness, even if they've not been to a deposition before is as comfortable as possible, even though, you know, they probably be in a million other places that day. Um, but knowing that, Hey, whatever you say today, that's going to have to be your testimony at trial kind of like the fact questions you were talking about earlier, Sean, if you say at your deposition, the light was green when I went through it, but then you change your story and it's the light was red when I went through it at trial. I mean, that's a, that's an inconsistency and juries pick up on that. They know that, you know, you're either forgetful or you're just intentionally not telling the truth. In this case, you know, we had a few trial delays because of um, COVID, you know, we were on this rolling docket for that 17 months I mentioned. So, most of that time we thought, okay, this isn't really going to happen because we don't have our summary judgment ruling yet. But once it came down to trial, I just reached out to everybody again and said, look, you know, I'm the guy you talked to 16 months ago. We need to find a time in the next month to meet. And, and most everybody was, um, was pretty cooperative. I did have a couple witnesses who didn't work there anymore. One guy was retired and he was umpiring little league baseball. So the last thing he wants to do is be involved in a, federal lawsuit. And, you know, I just said, look, come down to Oklahoma city and meet me. Let's grab a burger. I'll show you around the courthouse. It's across the street. And then you make the decision on if you want to be involved or not. And, you know, met with him for an hour and he decided, yep, I'll do it. Justin, you stole my thunder there. I was about to ask you if you at least bought him a burger. I really feel like it's a lot of just relationship building because it's one thing to call someone and say, Hi, I'm Justin Gross. I'm a lawyer. I need to ask you some questions about this lawsuit. This will take 10 minutes. You know, I don't mind spending an extra 15, 20, 30 minutes with somebody getting to know them and figuring out, you know, what do you like to do on the weekends? And, and you know, what sports teams do you like here in Oklahoma? Just so that they feel more comfortable, uh, not only with talking to you and keeping you updated on their status, like if they're going to be out of the state for a vacation or something when your trial happens, but also just, you know, 
hopefully building enough of a relationship with them where they feel like, okay, I trust this person and I'm happy to help out, even though it's a trial. And, you know, most people, um, like I said, would probably do a million other things besides that. You do a lot of prep. You get to know your witnesses. Um, How many witnesses did you end up calling at the trial? So we had 11 total witnesses at this trial, and that's including the plaintiff and our decision makers. And what the plaintiff's counsel wanted to do was call our three main our main HR people in their case in chief and, you know, to kind of streamline things. And also just from a strategic standpoint of we want the jury to hear our case as well early on. We don't want them to hear this one sided story that's going to be told by the plaintiff. So we asked the judge for uh, leeway under the federal rules to say they're going to they're going to ask our decision makers their questions, but we want leave to be able to ask them, you know, essentially our entire direct, um, but in their case in chief. And the judge let us do that. And I think it was great because they didn't just get to present little snippets of each decision maker's testimony. They got to hear the full story, uh, you know, before their case rested. And then in our case, we had six witnesses, uh, all of whom were just the fact witnesses that were interviewed during the investigation, um, obviously the complaining party, and then uh, the elevator mechanic I mentioned. Great. So with respect to the plaintiff's attorney, did he object or push back on y'all's proposal to basically do your direct um, when he was questioning your witnesses? You know, he didn't. Um, I think he realized, too, that the jury doesn't want to be there for an entire week because, you know, you just lose people's attention spans. I, I think the average attention span of an adult is something like 15 minutes now I've read. So he, he didn't object to that proposal as an overall strategy, but he did still object and, and you know, tried to keep us in the lines of the types of questions we could ask, you know, leading versus direct type questions. Okay. And how many days was the trial? It was three total days, um, three, I mean, complete days. We started on a Wednesday, picked our jury that morning, did opening statements, and then presentation of witnesses went all the way until uh, about lunch on Friday. And then we did the jury instructions that afternoon. And then uh, it was actually Friday the 13th. So we got our jury verdict back at six o'clock on the dot, probably after they had their their dinner. <laughs> great, great. Tell us about your closing and how you prepared for it and uh, what approach you took for the argument you made in it. Yeah. So when you live with a case this long, um, you know, two plus years, you kind of know throughout the case what the what the main issues are. Right. Um, Now, every trial that I've ever had, there's going to be some surprises. I mean, you can't predict everything. So what I did was on the front end a couple weeks before we got to the actual trial week was just kind of made a rough outline of, of what I wanted to talk about in opening and also in closing. Um, depending on how the evidence played out. And then at trial, I had the last page of my notebook where I would just make little notes um, about things plaintiff's counsel said in opening statement or, um, you know, surprising things that people might have said during their testimony or or things that were confirmed through people's testimony. And then I was able to kind of um, create all of that in, into this rough outline um, 
you know, on the last page of my notebook. And then Thursday night and even Friday morning, the day of closing, I kind of just streamlined everything because I think we had 15 minutes per side for closing. And my goal was not to take every last second of that, just to tell the jury, you know, our closing argument, uh, highlight the facts of the case and then uh, sit down. You know, I didn't, I, I knew by that point it was Friday that they didn't want to hear me talk forever. So, and I think closing argument really well, went really well. I mean, the opposing counsel we had in this case, he's, he's been practicing, I think close to 40 years. So, um, you know, he, he's a very good lawyer and, you know, he gets up first and you get to hear his side and, you know, it makes you think about a couple of things and then you get up and you make your argument and I'm like, okay, I knocked this one out of the park. And then he gets rebuttal and you're like, oh, okay, I didn't think about that one thing. You know, then the jury goes out and retires. And like I said, they came back at six o'clock and, you know, no matter how many trials you have, you, you get that, you know, pit in your stomach of like, okay, what, what are they going to say here? Right. And you, did you handle that closing yourself, Justin? Yeah, I did. I had, I have to, uh, you know, I have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, admiration and respect for my office managing shareholder here, Sam Fulkerson, as well as um, the uh, the managing partner of this client in St. Louis, Jim Paul. They both allowed me to kind of just run with the entire case from the beginning and, you know, kept them up to speed on everything. And then when we got to trial, Sam just said, look, you know everything. Um, you've, you've lived and worked this entire case. So, he let me do um, pretty much everything at the trial and, and he was there um, to provide any uh, guidance and feedback if I needed it. But um, I ended up doing the the whole thing start to finish. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's really great experience, Justin. Yeah, it um, really was. Those are all the questions I have. Sean, do you have any additional ones? Well, um, you mentioned, Justin, that every trial has a surprise. If you had to take, you know, kind of boil it down. What was the number one surprise in this trial? Well, I, I think some of it was the witnesses. You know, like I mentioned earlier, I, I tried to keep in touch with these people as much as I could, but there were just a couple of people that didn't work for us anymore by the time we got to trial. And and there's not really anything you can do about that based on just the schedule of the case. So that was kind of a challenge that we had to that we had to get over. Uh, the other thing was. I'm sure everybody that's uh, a lawyer listening to this has heard the statement that you don't ask any questions on cross that you don't know the answer to. And I, I did have, I did have a couple with a witness that I thought there's no way that you can't answer this question exactly how I'm imagining it in my mind. And in, in both instances, I got a different answer, which wasn't detrimental to the case, but it, it was surprising to me. And I was like, you know, it was one of those things where, I just followed my gut and, uh, you know, it, it ended up being totally fine, but that was kind of a surprise to me because what, what this individual who had actually been terminated by the client previously, what he testified to, um, even though it was something I wasn't expecting, it was also something that wasn't really believable. So I think it actually hurt his credibility in front of the jury. Interesting. So uh, I'm sure we have some listeners whose commute has already ended and they're probably um, either tuning out or thinking to themselves, when are these guys going to stop talking about this? <laughs> but uh, I thought I would just ask you if you could give us some takeaways of kind of the big picture thoughts of what you learned in the trenches uh, during this trial. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if you if you go chronologically, I think, number one, 
this comparator data is going to pop up in, in most, if not all cases. Um, and then once you get to the litigation, I think it's really important to reach out to the client and the key witnesses in the case early on. I mean, you know, ideally within the first 30 days, just so that you can begin wrapping your head around everything. And sometimes, you know, clients or witnesses might want to put off talking about certain things or producing certain documents, but I really think it helps you not only evaluate the case from a liability standpoint early on, but also just figure out where you need to go in the case with with your discovery, which may not happen for six months or a year down the road. Um, and then the other thing is just preparation. I mean, I can't say that enough about this particular case because all of our witnesses, the ones that were cooperative, um, you know, it, it did take a lot of preparation with each witness, even the ones that may have only testified at trial for 15 minutes, just getting them comfortable and, and sometimes meeting with them multiple times to make sure that, um, you know, that they didn't get on the stand and freeze. Um, and then the last thing is just keeping up to date with the law as it applies to the claims of your case, because I've had that happen a lot lately where, you know, different things that happen at the U.S. Supreme Court or within our circuit, you know, will affect the claims and their viability and sometimes even the defenses in the case, you know, as the case is uh, still active and, and going forward. Well, that's certainly the case when the judge doesn't rule on the motion for summary judgment for 16 months, huh? Yes, that that is also very true. All right. Adam, any other questions? No, that's all I have. Thank you so much, Justin. We know you're extremely busy. Um, so thank you for taking time out of your schedule to help us produce this podcast. We really appreciate your, your thoughts and help and uh, congratulate you again on your excellent victory and wish you continued success here at the firm. All right. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.